Welcome to episode 90 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, SJ Jones, called JJ. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we are starting a new series. Well, not exactly new, new, but we've talked about this uh, topic before, which is about the author career. And so we're kind of starting um, another series in that vein and um, wanted to talk today about your public persona as an author. Mm-hmm. Um, so two things. Forgive me if you guys start hearing any kind of roaring sound in the background. That would be my air conditioner kicking on because it has finally gotten warm here. Um, And the house is set to a certain temperature and I don't really have necessarily any control over that. Um, And the second thing is if we sound frazzled, it is because we've had kind of a couple of hiccups trying to record today. Uh, We apparently couldn't remember what day it was, what time it was. What we were recording. Technical issues, all kinds of things. It's just, you know, very professional (laughs) over here at Pub Crawl today. But I'm really excited about this topic, and this is going to be kind of a a topic for you, I think, mostly, JJ, because you're obviously the person with the most direct experience juggling this. And I guess maybe what we should start off with is when we say public persona, what does that mean? So I believe, and I haven't looked at our previous episodes, I think we did talk about a public versus private aspect mm-hmm. of being an author. Um, and I wanted to kind of revisit that topic a little bit, only because I have been doing this a little bit longer now, and I've kind of come to understand that there exists an idea of me. Um in the public sphere, such as it is. And that's not necessarily the same person as who I am in my real life or private life. And so when I'm talking about public persona, it's, it's that it's others perception of you. Now this, this is of course, personally speaking is not actually something I think about a lot at all. I don't really care what people think about me in my everyday life. (laughs) So getting into publishing was a little bit different for me in that once I became a public figure, because that's what happens to you when you become published, you become a public figure and you don't have to be online and you don't necessarily have to have social media or anything, but still there exists an idea of the author that may or may not entirely line up with um, who the who the author is. And I actually believe the last time we talked about this subject, we actually referred to the studio system back in kind of the golden age of Hollywood, where these studios would sort of craft a persona for their stars. You know, there's like, I don't know, the sultry siren or the, you know, the girl next door, blah, 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 blah. They kind of very carefully crafted these personas for these actresses and actors and you know sometimes they were wildly made up 
um, like back in the twenties, like Theta Bara was not some like daughter of an Egyptian priestess or whatever backstory they came up with her. Um, but then kind of later on, sometimes that persona was very close to who that actor was in their real life, but it would, it just sort of, and, and sometimes these personas would actually change. Um, the studio would try it one way, and if it wasn't quite working, then they would literally reinvent the, the not the author, the celebrity. I think this happened to Rita Hayworth. Um, you know, they, it was, she, was, she was initially known as a, a Spanish dancer, and she was Hispanic. Um, and then they thought she looked too ethnic, so they, made, they changed her hairline and gave, dyed it red and called her Rita Hayworth. So there's a lot of that that happened kind of back in the old studio system days. Um, and so the whole public persona that you have as an author is really that. It's, it's this sort of symbiotic creation that the audience has with this idea of you and that also that you have of this idea of you, if that makes sense, or if I'm totally mm-hmm. rambling. <laughs> no, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think that old Hollywood um, analogy works really well. And that kind of thing is still happening. I think maybe less than, you know, a studio imposing a persona on people. Um, a lot of times celebrities do it themselves now, you know, like every musician comes out with a new album and their new album, if their sound changes or their style changes, you know, they go through this whole kind of narrative about how they are evolving and their public self is evolving. Um, and I think celebrities are more in control of that nowadays with social media and, you know, the direct access that they have to creating those those personas. But, you know, it might it might seem strange to think of yourself in the same sphere as like these massive celebrities, but it's it's not the same in the levels of fame necessarily, although some authors certainly do um, get those levels of fame. But what's similar about it is the public facing aspect of it. The fact that there are people, strangers, people that you don't know and may never interact with who have an idea of who and what you are as a result of their interactions with your work. And yeah, so that's kind of. I think that, you know, again, I'm not a debut anymore. So I've been a, a, a public figure, honestly, for a couple of years now. And sometimes this discussion of, of an author's public persona sort of gets shorthanded, shorthanded to your quote unquote, brand, what your author brand is. And sometimes it actually is easier to conceive of it that way sometimes because your brand would include everything from the way you look, the, the sort of books you write, you know, a basic aesthetic, blah, 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 blah. And what, what I kind of wanted to talk about today, instead of sort of discussing it, I kind of wanted to give a couple of practical tips about how to navigate this how to understand and perhaps synthesize a cohesive public persona for yourself. I also sort of do want to touch on the fact that I'm going to just say this for the past 10 years or so with the rise of social media, there's sort of been this emphasis on authenticity Mm. that 
you know, you want to be authentic, you want to be, quote, real or whatever. And I'm just going to say this, because I've been watching a lot of The Good Place, I'm just going to say that's bullshit. <gasps> I'm so glad you're finally watching it. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Um, Definite bullshit, <laughs> uh, as they say. Um, it is. And I think it has always been. I mean, I remember writing in my live journal, you know, back mm-hmm. in like 2004. And that was live journal was really all about like your most authentic self. And it's like your diary that everybody else could just happen to read. And I myself had a very like emotional, um, you know, live journal that I think I would have presented as authentic and I think people read it as authentic and it wasn't that it was false. It was all true, but I was also definitely sitting at my computer, like with my audience of live journal readers in mind, like maximizing my emotional turmoil for their benefit. (laughs) I think, you know, the authenticity is such a, tricky thing when it comes to performance and I I guess existing in public is a performance of some kind Mm -hmm. and when it comes to art you know like it's yeah authentic Hmm. I mean it all all personas are to some degree authentic Um, unless you're I guess Dan Mallory but like (laughs) (laughs) Um, to some extent, when you're crafting a public persona, even if you're not a published person or if you're not a public figure, if you have ever been active online the way Kelly and I were in the early 2000s, in the back of your mind, you are aware that there is an audience and therefore you sort of start tweaking and presenting and and, and sort of crafting the way you're presenting yourself to an audience And, you know, to go back to the top of the episode when I say I really kind of don't care what people think about me, that is true to some extent. But I will say that I have always been conscious of the way that I have portrayed some idea of myself online, which nowadays there is no real differentiation between an online life and and your real life in the public sphere. Being online is essentially being in public. Um, So... You know, I've always been conscious of it. So for, you know, a lot of younger people, people my age and younger, people Kelly, you know, Kelly and I are kind of on the older end of millennials, but, you know, we sort of grew up with this. So we are probably a little bit more familiar with this. If we, if we haven't examined it so directly, we're, we're always, this is sort of the basic soup that we're always swimming in. Mm. Um, But I do think that it is, something to be conscious of when you are going through as again if you don't want to be on social media you don't have to be on social media I still think that's really important in fact nowadays I find myself less and less on social media because one I find it a huge time suck and two it doesn't quite bring me the same joy as it used to I used to think it was a place to sort of engage with uh my peers but the longer I do this, the more I realize that there's engaging with my peers and then there's engaging with an audience. And those are two very different things. And I enjoy engaging with my peers. 
perhaps I shouldn't admit this, I don't really enjoy engaging with an audience. <laughs> Which isn't to say that I don't enjoy reading or meeting readers, because I do. Mm-hmm. It's always rewarding to meet a reader. But meeting a reader face-to-face and in-person is different than engaging with a reader in public, like actually like talking to them. There's always going to be some sort of performative aspect or depending on how old they are or, you know, whatever, there's, there's always some sort of strange power imbalance between an interaction between a public persona and a reader. That's, that's really what starts to make me uncomfortable the longer I've been doing this. So I've been dialing back a bit my social media presence. And, to, and the third honest part is that it, because it was such a time suck, it was taking time away from actual writing. Um, because that's, that's really the sort of being an author in this day and age. You really do kind, can't escape this whole public persona slash brand thing. There's really no way to escape that. And if we could figure out how, or if I could figure out how, I would. Because, again, this is not something that is natural for me. And, I, and specifically, I mean the engagement part. Because I like performing. Performing is fine. Um, but performance, too, is not the same thing as engagement. Mm-hmm. And that's what I struggle with. Um, in, in a sort of, you know, like in this sort of public manner, because, you know, when I'm at a conference, um, or a festival and I'm on a panel, this is a, to me, this is a performance, right? Mm, I'm on panel, I'm talking about my books, I'm making jokes with my friends. I'm, you know, that's a performance that the readers have kind of come to see. They've come to ask questions and talk and whatever, but this is a performance I'm giving, the harder part comes then afterwards when there's a signing. Because I am not a touchy-feely person, as Kelly can probably tell you. I like to maintain personal space. I am not really that friendly. <laughs> I can sound, you know, with amongst my peers and people I'm comfortable with, or on stage, I can sound very friendly and kind of open and chatty and whatever, but actually in person, in my private life, I'm not a friendly person. And so this aspect of it does take a lot of work for me because I don't want to give the reader the impression that I don't like them, that I don't appreciate them, that I don't, that I'm not grateful that they're there, that they've come to see me and to get my book signed. Of course I'm grateful, but that takes so much work from me. It's very unnatural, which is really the thing I fear, I think, most when I do these things is that in this sort of signing, I seem unnatural. That mm. you see me on stage and I can I can goof around or whatever, but then you kind of have a one-on-one meeting with me and then I suddenly become stiff. People who mm-hmm. have seen me in signing, please let me know if I am and I'll try and correct it. But it... <laughs> And again, that seems at odds with who I am as a person, too, because generally in my real life, I just really don't care if you think I'm mean mm. or a bench. Well, but, it's, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> but it's not about being mean or I, and you, what it is is boundaries. Right. right? Like right. it's and I think the hard thing, too, is because in a lot of ways, this podcast is a performance. Yes. And 
you know, and that's something that I've learned as I've gone to conferences and I met people, I meet a lot of listeners of the podcast and I always love, um, meeting you and hearing that the podcast has meant so much to you or helped you with your query or helped you understand some aspect of the business. Like that's why we do this. It's so amazing. But there's also a strange thing where when people come up to me and talk to me about the podcast, there's an intimacy for them because I've been talking to them every week for like three years. And so they feel an intimacy that I don't feel because I've never met them or spoken to them (laughs) before. They're a complete stranger to me and I'm happy to see them and I want to chat with them, but like that there's no intimacy on, on my part. I don't know you. And I imagine it's similar with authors. When you read a book that means so much to you, you create, there's an intimacy that's created there with both the work and with the, the writer or the creator of the work. And, um, authors don't share that intimacy with their audience because it's, by nature, it's like a one way mm-hmm. sort of a thing, which doesn't mean that, you know, as JJ said, that we're not glad to see you that, you know, authors at signings aren't, you know, thrilled. And, and it, and, and I think it's different for everything too, because then you get some people, right. Who, some authors who probably are very comfortable, um, and friendly and give that appearance, but that also is an intimacy, Like that's also like, like that's not intimacy either. And it might be mistaken for intimacy because it's warm and it's friendly and it's, you know, open and it comes naturally to that particular person. But that's not, that's not intimacy. It's not, you know, it's, it's something different. Yeah. The actual term would be a parasocial relationship. (laughs) Mm. Um, a parasocial relationship is generally when somebody has a real relationship, you know, they, uh, on, on one, on their end. It's not like, it's not really like unrequited love, but it's people develop parasocial relationships with public figures, with fictional characters. You know, I just watched, uh, the Avengers end game, a movie over this past weekend and you know I have a parasocial relationship with these characters because I've seen them in all these movies over 10 years so I have emotional investment in them that of course they don't feel bad because they're fictional characters um and it's a little bit the same you know when you are an author and and with an with a readership you know your readers have a parasocial relationship with you Um, so for me, I craft a public persona that's essentially my boundaries. Like this is the persona I put up because I'm, I am very much an introvert. So I, all this, all this people, all, all these people, like I can, I went to San Diego Comic Con a couple years ago and I remember walking out into the floor and there's so many people around me that I could literally feel feel the energy actually leaving my pores. I didn't even talk to them. I was just in a room with a, so many people. And then I came home, I came to the, the hotel room I was in and just passed out. I had literally done nothing. I just walked the floor a little bit and then, but I had to come home and pass out. So for me, this author persona is, is a defense mechanism more or less. And the other thing too, is I think, People 
sometimes, and I don't think there really are enough studies about online interaction because that is also actual real interaction. Even if it's not face-to-face, it's still a real interaction you're having with people. And so again, I put up a public persona on all of my social media as boundaries to kind of protect myself. Like my real friends get all of my Twittery, you know, funny thoughts and my petty and salty things. But the stuff I present online is very curated. And I think, I don't think it's bad to admit that because we have prized this this idea of authenticity for so long that this notion that this authenticity is curated can be a little bit antithetical, I think, to particularly to, you know, young people, you know, that this idea that it's like, oh, you know, every, you know, if you're not authentic, you're fake. That's not true. Um, So I spent, I, and I, I've always been somewhat careful about how I present myself online anyway, um, because I like to think of myself as, you know, I basically the persona I've crafted of myself in public is an idea that I've had about myself. And the disconnect can come, of course, when I have an idea of myself and it doesn't actually track with what readers think I am or when, you know, there's always, you know. And some of this is obviously trial and error. Some of this is um, understanding how things get received, you know, your actions or what you put out into the world. I'm talking kind of in the abstract right now, but let me see if I can try and get a little bit more specific. So for me, sometimes it's easy. And of course, this is a podcast, so I can't show you. (laughs) It's an audio medium and I'm just trying to be visual on an audio audio medium. But um, I have an Instagram account, right? So if you guys want to go to my Instagram account, it's at sjjones, S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, as we say at the end of every episode. Um, but I have, if you look at my Instagram, I think it actually gives me, gives you a sense of who I am as a person. So mm. I don't know. I'm going to put you on the spot, Kelly. If you go to my Instagram feed and look at it, what kind of person do you think I am? I'm pulling it up right now, actually, so that I can look at it and say yeah I think I mean you've got um lots of like artistic photography shots and then you've got like makeup selfies and you've got pictures of you with friends and I would say you're an artistic aesthetically driven person um who has great friendships and travels a lot which I think is all true. It is. It is all true. Um, there is, and it's sometimes easy for me because I do have a background in visual arts and design mm-hmm. and photography is a, is a hobby of mine. Um, but I edit my photos in a very particular way. I compose my shots in a very particular way. I think... Um, if you know me, you probably know that I like Wes Anderson kind of a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think you could probably see that visual influence there. Um, and that's somewhat 
it's not entirely, you know, pulled out of, you know, like I'm, I specifically set out to create this persona. That's not really the case. I've always been drawn to Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. to his aesthetic and to his sort of whimsical kind of storytelling. Um, so it's really been cultivated rather than created wholesale. Because I didn't mm-hmm. go go out there and I'm like, I'm going to pick a manic pixie dream girl sort of persona <laughs> for myself. Um, that's not how it happened. Although, you know, like in college, there were a lot of guys who sort of considered me one, I guess. So that mm-hmm. that I knew that was actually how people sort of perceived me. Um, mm-hmm. So I've always kind of had that at the back of my mind. Um, so when I... And, so, and because enough people had sort of said that about me when I was in college and younger, I said, okay, well, this is the public persona I'm going to craft. This is the facade I'm going to hide behind. Not necessarily hide, but mm-hmm. basically it's, I'm going to use it as a shield. <laughs> I'm going to prop yeah. it up as a shield. It's, I mean, I think essentially what you do, right, is that you amplify certain parts of yourself and... And you not repress, but you you amplify certain things and then you keep certain things private and that, you know, it's nothing. It's not false. It's not created from scratch. It comes from authentic pieces of who you are, but it's amplified for an audience and it's streamlined so that it's not all of you. It's like there are certain things that you hold back. Yeah, there are certain things that I don't post about. Particular and again, Instagram is sometimes easiest for me to point to because it's a visual medium, which of course I can't show you on a podcast. But there are things I don't really. There are a lot of things that I am drawn to. Um, I am, and I've said this before. I'm pretty goth, um, but a goth aesthetic actually doesn't work with me um, as much as I love it. I really do. I. I can't even really wear black. Like, I just look boring, (laughs) which is, you know, people can, some people can wear black and they look cool and disaffected and goth. I just look boring, Um, (laughs) which is why I tend to wear kind of brighter colors, something that's a little unusual or off the mark or whatever. Um, But like, so things that don't really fit in with the aesthetic of this idea of myself I don't actually share I mean my friends and people who know me very well would of course know these aspects of my of my personality and everything else but again the things that I decide to amplify as Kelly had said are kind of carefully crafted um Mm. if I were more mercenary about it I would probably market test this but I'm too lazy um and I just do what I want (laughs) I do what I want, but I also do what I want in what I hope is a cohesive way. Mm. So that when people see, you know, my Instagram, my website, the, the stupid things I tweet, um, it kind of gives you a general sense of who I am, which is, I yeah. think, someone who's probably kind of essentially sanguine personality who occasionally um, gets really pedantic about things that she really likes or cares about. <laughs> So if we're talking about amplifying, you know, certain parts of your personality that fit 
you know, with your overall brand or aesthetic or the way that others perceive you, how would you suggest that authors who are either already in the public eye or are about to enter the public eye, how would you suggest they figure out which things to reserve or hold back on? Again, I said before that some of this is trial and error. Um, but I also actually think that this does call for an ability to read a room, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually posted about this where I talked about, you know, what were the most useful classes that I ever took for being an author. And I said two things improv or theater or and the second thing was some sort of communal or community-based movement which was very vague but specifically I was talking about martial arts because I just started taekwondo um for a couple of reasons the but when I say read a room you learn that very quickly when you are doing something like improv or theater you learn when things are falling flat when when an audience is wanting or expecting something from you in this performance that you're not giving them and when you do give it to them the room changes and you can mm-hmm. feel that somebody who has been in theater and who has done it can sense that and you can also do this even when you're not physically in the room with someone you can read a quote room online um so that's really what it is. It's the ability to kind of anticipate what people want from you that isn't at odds with who you are as a person, obviously. Because if, you know, if, right. if you're someone who, like me, is not particularly warm or friendly, then I'm not going to go out there, even though I'm I'm sure some people probably want me to be, you know, nicer or friendlier or whatever. I'm just not that person. So I'm not going to be able to give it to them in a way that that is authentic because it's still authentic when I, you know, when I'm performing these sorts of things. Um, so it's really, I would say it's the ability to read a room. I think you will be able to sense what people want from you. And I think when I am, you know, very friendly or warm or effusive, it doesn't actually land very well because that's not actually what people want from me or they expect from me. I don't think they expect me you know, Kelly, I, Kelly and I have known each other for a very long time. People expect that from Kelly. I love you, Kelly, but it's true. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> we have always said that JJ is the tough love person. When I texted JJ, help me, like if I was writing something and I was struggling with it, I would text JJ or Gchat JJ to give me the real talk to tell me how I was screwing up and what needed to be done to fix it. And it's the same way about anything. I go to you for, um, for you to give me the truth, to be straight with me and honest with me. And, um, I don't go to you for hair pads. I have other friends I go to for exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But if I want a hair pad, I don't go to JJ. (laughs) Yeah, and you, that's the same thing that you, you kind of know these things about your friends too, right? Like you don't, there are some people that you know that if you just show up, they'll make you cookies and make you a cup of tea and sit down and give you a hug. And 
people know that that's just not me as a person. So I'm not going to give it to you. I will give you advice, you know, and it, I will give you what I perceive as truth as hard as it is to swallow sometimes. Um, I won't sugarcoat it. <laughs> I'll try to be kind about my delivery, but I'm not oh, going definitely. I'm not going to sugarcoat what I'm going to tell you. You're not cruel. You're <laughs> never cruel. I really I truly you're not cruel, but you know, but that that's what you do and that's so valuable. Like that's not you know, like we joke about it, like, oh, it's not tea and cookies, but like, it's, <laughs> it's really, it's really valuable and sometimes more valuable than tea and cookies, which can sometimes be, you know, but yeah. And I think you get that sense from your audience too, about what they expect from you. Maybe they do expect tea and cookies from you. Maybe they turn to you for writing advice. Maybe they ask you, and I, and I actually find this very interesting. So again, to go back to Instagram, which is really probably the social media platform that I like the best right now. Um, but I sometimes sort of put, you know, ask me whatever, right. Those, you know, question boxes. And I have people ask me questions. Um, and I kind of find it interesting going through other authors and kind of see the questions that they get versus the questions I get. And a lot of the questions that I get seem to be about kind of creativity or where do ideas come from and, you know, about the writing process. So over time, I've kind of come to understand that people kind of want that from me. The They want me to talk about how to synthesize creativity into productivity. Uh, it's probably maybe. But like other people got questions about their personal life. I don't actually normally get questions about my personal life. I think people generally sense that I'm not really that forthcoming with details about my personal life at all. I'm willing to talk about other things. Um, If you want to talk Dragon Age with me, I can go on for about 25 hours. But like my personal life, I'm not going to share with you. Some people are open about their personal life and therefore invite more questions about their personal You know, so there it does change and I find this interesting when I do see those you know ask me questions um uh, on other people's Instagram stories so again like these are sort of ways to figure out what an audience expects from you you can literally kind of ask them ask me anything and the sort of responses and the questions that you're getting will kind of start to shape what the audience is expecting from you Mm-hmm. Um, again, you don't have to answer questions that that you don't want to answer, that you don't want to respond to. And, and on the flip side, too, you don't want to seem so cold and calculating. Mm. There, there are definitely some people that I that I personally see see as a little bit cold, and that's absolutely their prerogative. They don't have to be warm and effusive or anything like that. Um, but they, that also kind of makes them a little bit of an enigma to me that I don't really know what to expect from them or their persona. They're a little bit of a wild card because they don't give anything. So there's kind of that aspect to it too. Um, you know, and the other things is everyone's first couple of panels are always going to be awkward if you've never done a panel before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will give you some advice immediately about being on a panel. It, no one's there to hear you sound smart. That's like honestly my first thing. No one cares if you're smart. <laughs> well, 
you know, again, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really blunt and honest about this. No one cares that you're smart. And the thing is, most of us are really smart, so we don't have to prove it either. Mm -hmm. So if no one cares about how smart you are and how much thought you've put into your writing or whatever, no one cares about that, then what do they care about? They care about having fun. And that's really the thing you have to learn and to kind of get over when you're on panel or if you're, you know, speaking in public. People want to be entertained. They don't want to be lectured to. They don't want to be, you know, talked at like a teacher in a classroom. People want to, they want to have fun. They want to hear you make jokes. They want to laugh. That's the other thing I think improv is very good at. Because, you know, it's obviously great to do, and I've done several panels with my closest writing friends, um, you know, obviously Roshni Chakshi and, you know, Renee Ahtia and Marie Lu. And I've done a lot of panels with my friends. So when you have that chemistry there, it's easier to play off of each other. I mean, Kelly and I do this. We've, we've known each other for a long time. We've done this for three years. So we have an idea of the flow. And that's the other mm-hmm. thing, too, is the, this idea of a flow that, that, that comes naturally. And improv helps with this a lot. Um, because sometimes you're thrown in a mix where somebody, you know, somebody's so self-conscious. And so you kind of start to, to change your tack to adjust what you're saying to kind of tweak mm-hmm. the joke. Like, I, honest to God, when I'm on a panel... If someone asks me a question about my work, I'm actually not thinking about how to answer the question about my work. I am, but I'm also thinking about how I'm going to deliver this answer about my work in a way Mm -hmm. to make the audience laugh and engage with me because I know that they're there to be entertained. Um, So that's really what I want to get at here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have a background in theater, which has made me really comfortable talking in front of people. I love going to conferences and I love teaching classes. I could teach classes or lecture Mm -hmm. all day long. I love reading a room. (laughs) I love, I just, I love it. I love doing it. Um, and I'm comfortable doing it. And, but, but I also want to say like, if you can go take an improv class do it. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Do it. It will help you in so many areas of your life, certainly in your career. But if you can't, I want you to know that we all do this and that you can hone those skills just in your everyday life because we all adjust ourselves depending on who we're talking to. You are different with your boss than you are with your spouse, than you are with your parent, Mm -hmm. than you are with your best friend. And it's always you, right? Like you are still the same person, but again, you amplify or withdraw certain aspects of yourself depending on the situation you're in. Is it formal? Is it informal? You know, what's the power dynamic? You know, on and on and on and on. You do this every day and we all do this every day. And that's a muscle that you can exercise. And you can, if you can think about it in that way of just, you're taking this thing that we all do naturally every day of our lives and you're expanding it into something huge, which is, you know, your author persona, it's, it's the same thing. You're just doing it on a much larger stage. So 
you know, if you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm never going to take an improv class or I can't afford that or I live in a place where there are no classes, like, we're not saying that the only way that you can gain these skills is to, you know, take an improv class or become a theater person. Like, I, I love being a theater person, but we're obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are. You know, so don't feel like, don't, don't feel like that's how you have to do it. Everybody does this. We all you know, flex different aspects of our personality, um, depending on who we're talking to and what we're talking about. And all you have to do is think about your author persona as doing that on a much grander scale. Yes. And I think too, about your author persona is for me anyway, having an author persona means I can turn it off Otherwise, I would always be working. And I, this is something that I've learned as I've been writing full-time. And is, and what I found actually really difficult about writing, about being published, writing, and having a full to- full-time job at the same time, the thing that I found very difficult was it wasn't just writing anymore. Before I got published, I had my day job, and then I could come home and write. But after I got published, I still had my day job and I had to come home and write my next book and then also deal with this public persona aspect of myself. Um, and I was still figuring that out. It, it was very, very exhausting. And, you know, I can, you know, there's a lot of burnout there that came from it. But this, you know, and the other thing, too, is I've been writing is the ability to what I missed about my day job was the ability to leave it there, right? You come home, you, know, you, could, you leave the office and the work is at the office. So that's the same thing with the public author, public persona. You have a public persona and then you can take it off and just be you. And that's really, really, really refreshing. So do we have any kind of last thoughts about this public persona idea? No, I mean, I think that final thing that you just touched on is really pretty crucial about being able to take it off Mm -hmm. and being able to have a life that is, you know, your, your life and your work. And no matter how passionate we are about our work, um, we still need, I find that I need that delineation, Mm -hmm. um, in order to live a balanced life and to feel fulfilled and to avoid the dreaded burnout that we've all talked about before. Um, and it is a tool, you know, like it, it's a tool that will help you, I think in so many ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of, um, the last time we talked about this was sort of like entry level this is a little like the next level up we can talk more specifically and concretely about what contributes the idea of a brand or persona but maybe we can table that discussion for another day Mm. (laughs) um so then let's move on what are you working on I still can't talk about it. I hope I'll be able to talk about it soon. But just stuff. I don't know. Things. Things happening. Hopefully. Knock on wood. All the things. Right. We'll see. What about you? Um, so I heard, I saw on Twitter a while ago that um, 
if you start drafting in uh, Comic Sans. Comic Sans, yeah. It helps. Uh, and I resisted and resisted and have been drafting in Comic Sans for the past, I don't know, three days. And I've written 15,000 words. Uh, I hate that it works. I've heard from a lot of people that they hate that it works, but everybody seems to agree that it works. You know, to be honest, Comic Sans actually gets a pretty bad rap for sort of undeserved reasons. Um, it was actually designed to help people with dyslexia mm-hmm. uh, because all the, the letters are shaped differently. So each letter is distinct and easily recognizable. Um, but because of that, it has a sort of youthful quality to it that isn't serious. Um, and so that friendliness, I think people just started using it everywhere and then it just sort of became shorthand for bad taste. Uh Um, so poor comic sans. Um, I still don't like it, but it does work. (laughs) Well, have you read the piece in McSweeney's about comic sans? Yes. (laughs) It's great. It, it's up there with the decorative gourd season as yes. like some of the best pieces that have ever been in McSweeney's. Um, all right. So that's what we're working on. Have you been reading mm-hmm. anything? I have only been reading um, both client manuscripts, uh, working on some revisions for some things and uh, requested manuscripts. I have not read a published book in the last two weeks. I'm also actually reading two books for potential blurbs at the moment. Um, one is, I actually, I'm not going to talk about them, but I am reading two books. <laughs> uh, I, I, again, these are things that I just don't want to share because it's not really part of my author persona. I'm just going to use that excuse mm-hmm. now. <laughs> not... There you go. It works. It works. Um, but I am reading. What about? Yeah. Um, published work. I just finished. Another Sharon Sharon Shin book. I am rapidly running out of those, so I don't know what I'm going to do when I burned her entire. You're going to crash hard. <laughs> You're going to crash hard. What am I going to do, Kelly? <laughs> um. Yeah, that's it, more or less. Um. Any off mini recommendations? Well, I want you to go first because you're watching The Good Place, and I want to hear all about how much. What you think of it? Oh, one, I love it. Um, and two, I'm mad because I can't find the third season isn't available on Netflix yet. And so mm-hmm. I haven't seen the third season yet. It's killing me. Uh, I love The Good Place. Um, people have been talking. I'm not really a sitcom watcher. Mm, so I'm not either. It's It was going to have to get over that hump first, right? You know, that it's a sitcom. Moreover, it's a network sitcom, so I was kind of like, no. Um, But so many people I knew really liked it, and my friend Sarah Nicole Lemon was like, you really need to watch The Good Place because this is right up your alley. Um, So after... After Avengers Endgame, I needed to like detox from all the feelings I had about it. So I decided, well, this is probably a good a good opportunity and a good time to start the good place. And boy, was I correct! Um, mm-hmm. It's so good, you guys. I love it. Oh God, it's so good. Um, if you guys don't know the basic premise, the basic premise is a character named Eleanor Shellstrop. Um, 
has died and has in the afterlife has discovered that she is in the quote good place. Um, but she, but there's been a mistake because she's actually been a horrible person while she was alive. So she's trying to, she's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be there. Um, it is so funny and incredibly smart, um, because the, Mm -hmm. the show actually grapples with really, really heavy questions about ethics and moral philosophy and it does them very, very well. And I'd said before that, I was like, this is the show Lost wanted to be, but isn't. <laughs> um, did you know, I don't know if we'll talk about it, because I guess, can you spoil things that are like... We could talk about in, it off air, yeah. But did you know about the twist? I did not know about the twist. Oh, um, good, me neither. So when I got to the twist, I was like, what? But it was great. <laughs> Me too. It was so good. Ted Danson is amazing. Oh my God. He's actually my favorite character. Michael is my favorite character. I was going to ask you who's your favorite. Michael's my I favorite. Love Michael. Probably followed by Janet. Um, mm-hmm. Janet and Michael. And then <laughs> I have a real soft spot for um, Janu. Slash Jason. Jason! <laughs> How can you not? He's so hot and so dumb. I and know. That's like... It's like totally in my wheelhouse. Oh, you're hot and you're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the bloopers too. Um, kind of the blooper reels from the seasons. Mm. He's hilarious because he's improving a lot of his funniest lines. <laughs> And they're all so, so, so good. Um, so, yeah, that that was me. Um, there was two off-menu recommendations there because I just said Endgame and um, The Good Place. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to think, have I seen anything else? Um, oh, I, as mentioned before, I started Taekwondo and I took my first belt test. So I'm officially a yellow belt now. Nice. Um, those are kind. Didn't of, you break a board? I did. Um, so, I got promoted like kind of ridiculously quickly, <laughs> um, because I had literally only ever been to Taekwondo five times before Master Adams asked me to take the belt test. <laughs> um, the test involves um all nine not all but all the white belt kicks which are there are nine of them you have to demonstrate proficiency in nine white belt kicks you have to show um uh, some poses and stances you have to have sort of a very very rudimentary knowledge of how to count korean which is no problem for me since i speak korean um and then to officially pass you actually have to break a board and um you know I was nervous about it and I was also the only adult testing for I was the only adult white belt because the other two testing with me were children (laughs) 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 so I was the oldest person there hey that's the other thing I liked about martial arts is it it forces you to be humble (laughs) Mm. um any sort of communal based movement forces you to be humble but it anyway so um so the last part was breaking the board and I watched the other kids I mean they were kids too um take a couple of tries 
to break the board, but I got up there and, you know, did what I was told and broke it on the first try. So, yay! Yeah, it was very exciting. Um, I actually, to, to kind of go back to what I had said previously about taking community-based movement, which is so broad, um, but growing up, I did fencing. Um, which is, you know, it, again, that is a martial art because you're using blades, you know, to fight each other. Um, so a lot of the principles from fencing did carry over to taekwondo, but also mm-hmm. skydiving. Mm. Skydiving is an intensely physical sport. Um, it may not sound like it because you're like, well, what are you going to, what are you doing? You're just falling out of a plane. How hard can that be? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Keeping your body, like your core, like yeah. engaged. You have and... to be incredibly aware of what your body is doing and how to get stable. And you can actually move around in free fall. Um, you know, you can turn, you can move forward, you can move backward, you can move side to side, you can move up, you can move down. Um, and those are all, those are all movements and I've done yoga for a long time and I, you know, and, and so it was natural when I got to skydiving to understand how my body moved. But what I liked about skydiving that I didn't realize I missed until I started Taekwondo was this idea that everyone is constantly learning. Mm. So you can never be the smartest person in the room. (laughs) Um, For a lot of us writers, I think we're used to being the smartest person in the room because we were nerdy children. But you just can't be when you're in this sort of situation. But moreover, you know... Being a student and also being a teacher, what I loved about skydiving, the more I did it, the more I got involved in the community, I loved learning from more experienced jumpers, but I also really enjoyed helping less experienced jumpers figure things out. And that's also what I really enjoy about Taekwondo. Uh, I pick it up, picked it up pretty quickly because I had... A background in dance and fencing and skydiving and yoga so I knew already kind of how my body moves in space so I was able to help other people kind of around my level sort of understand and figure things out and I really love sharing that sort of knowledge and I love receiving that knowledge from people who are more um, advanced than I am and it's kind of something that I think is really crucial in publishing, this actually has more to do with your peers than it has to do with an audience. Mm. No one likes to know it all. <laughs> no one likes to know it all. So you want to be, you know, and you have to, and you, remembering too that everyone is at different stages of their journey, publishing or in their martial arts journey, helps you get perspective. It brings you out of your head. It, it brings you out of this incredible incredibly limiting space where you're like oh my god am I falling behind are they better than me you know there's so much insecurity and anxiety that I think having done these sorts of things like skydiving and and taekwondo kind of makes me remember no 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 we're literally all in this together and it helps for us to share knowledge and how what we've learned with each other because that helps everybody get better so Mm -hmm. That that's pretty much what I've got off menu wise. But you, I 
Um, well, the second season of the She-Ra reboot is available on Netflix. I haven't finished it yet. I'm watching it episode by episode with my daughter, but I love that show and I'm glad that it's back. Um, so that is really great and I'm sure that it will continue to be fantastic and I have all these Catra Adora feelings. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so there's that for sure. Um, this past weekend I was on a friend vacation, which I haven't, um, taken a vacation to hang out with friends in so long. So two of my childhood best friends were, came out here to the Midwest and we drove to Iowa and we saw the 20th anniversary touring cast non-equity hmm. of rent and the 20th anniversary was like two years ago or something like 97 yeah but it's still the same tour it's not the same cast because it used to be equity and now it's non-equity and for those who don't know anything about um theater non-equity is like uh, less professional let's leave it at that than yeah. equity sometimes to um, get into more professional acting credits you need to be part of a certain number of equity shows. Mm-hmm. So productions. productions yes. yeah. So rent, I grew up with rent. I was, I think 14 or 15 when it debuted and, and became a big sensation. And it was a very important show to me. I was fortunate enough to get to see most of the original cast on Broadway. Um, Daphne Rubin Vega, who played Mimi had left, but I think I saw everyone else. Um, so the show meant a lot to me. I was really young. I really loved it. I've seen it upwards of 10 times in different productions. Rent has problems. <laughs> There's things about it that haven't aged well. Um, you know, but no matter what those things are and its many flaws exist, um, it will always have a very special place in my heart and, and was definitely a defining um, thing as part of these friendships, the, the, these friends that I have. Um, so we went to go see it. It was dreadful. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't as bad as Rent Live. It wasn't okay. as bad as Rent Not Live. That was worse. But it was real bad. Um, Angel was transcendent, though. The young man playing Angel was phenomenal. He was, like, in a completely different show than everyone else. <laughs> um, but it, he was fantastic. Um, and it was so funny so there's been like all of these jokes about Rent in recent years about how like Benny is really just the protagonist, right? He's a young black man whose friends are like refusing to pay rent and being, you know, horrible people. And he's just trying to like, you know, revitalize his community, whatever. So there's all these jokes about how Benny is the protagonist in, in the show. Benny is the not the villain. He's, there is he's really an no antagonist. villain, but he's like he's an antagonist. He's the ideological yeah. foil he's, for the cast. Yes, for the cast. But there's all these jokes about how nowadays Benny, you know, is is the good guy. And so the program had two things in it that were super bizarre that I'd never seen in a program <laughs> for Rent before. 
The first one is that it had a map, like an actual like drawing with like lines and branches um, of like the the way the characters know each other. So it's like Maureen and Joanne had a line because they're in a relationship. But Maureen used to date Mark and Mark is Roger's roommate and Roger is dating Mimi. <laughs> like they had like an actual drawing, like a <laughs> like a character web map. That was so, I was like, the relationships in this show are not complicated enough to need a map. Pretty much in the first song, everybody gets introduced. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) But there, so there was a map that was super strange. And there was also like a summary um, on the same page as the map that was going to like explain the show to people who'd never seen it before. And it was written as though Benny was the protagonist. He's the first character mentioned. It's like Benjamin Coffin the third is the owner of the 11th Street lot, and he wants to like whatever. And the whole thing was just about him. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and then my friends and I were talking about the production afterward, and we realized that every single person in the cast wasn't alive when Rent was originally staged. All of them are younger than God. I feel old. It was horrifying to come to that realization. Oh, God. Not a single member of the cast was over the age of 22. So none of them were alive when Rent originally happened. Oh, no. So, um, so yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> theater is always great. Rent is a relic with tons of flaws, but is amazing. We did put it on in the car ride back and just belt the whole thing, which was The music's very still fun. great. The thing. It's still very great. The music yes. is still they, great. Yeah. And I actually haven't listened to it, so I guess it's not technically a recommendation, but they recently produced um, the Jonathan Larson Project, which he was the composer yeah. of and the creator of Rent. And Tick, Tick, and, Boom. And Tick, Tick, Boom, which I saw when it toured back in, like, 2000 or 99 or something. Um, but the Jonathan Larson, Larson project is apparently a collection of songs of his, you know, that never really saw the light of day, um, that they've recorded and put together in kind of an album. So, um, it made me want to pick that up and, uh, and read it and, or not read it, listen to it. So I will be doing that. Hopefully it's good. Um, so I guess that's an informal pseudo recommendation, but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of it. We're rewatching glow right now. My husband and Ooh. I, I've seen it a million times. He has never watched it. So he's watching it with me now. Um, cause I think the third season will be coming soon. So Ooh, and it takes place in Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Me too. Just, so yeah. Yeah. Cause I was trying to think of, I'm just, I'm just mad that, that the good place third season's not on Netflix. I know. I know. And I wish I had started it sooner only because I do have a Hulu subscription, but they only have the last five episodes of season three on Hulu. Oh. Um, and the same thing on the NBC website. And I was like, God. Hmm. Um, but it, it's so good. And, uh, it's so good. I just, so quotable, so quotable. And I'm, and I'm sitting <laughs> Because Mark has been studying for his boards, um, which are exams that... I, this is the other reason I could never be a doctor. Because you just have to be te- taking tests for the rest of your life. And no thank you. Um, 
but he's been studying for his boards. Um, and so he's studying for his boards and I'm watching the good place and cackling. <laughs> he's just like, what? What's going on? And I was like, ah, this show you have to watch. And he's like, I'm studying for boards though. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I love the good place. It's, it's so yeah, that is definitely probably, um, a off menu recommend recommendation. Many, 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 many of the viewers, have already know about, but uh, I'm late to the party, so <laughs> I, I'm going to put that forward. So yeah, I think that's it for this week, right? Mm-hmm. That's all for this week. Next time, we'll be covering uh, the second topic in the author career series, which is publicity and promotion and what you, the author, can do. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review and you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also visit us on Patreon at Publishing Crawl and join our lovely patrons in supporting the upkeep of this podcast. We would not be able to do this without you. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter and Instagram, or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Contagion, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or use the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Patrons also have access to a suggestion box where they can volunteer topics they would like us to discuss in future episodes. And please remember to be sending in your queries to us for our next uh, query critique live, which should probably be happening at the end of our author uh, career series. And um, if you are a patron that will also be having our first pages live um, critique happening around the same time as well so don't forget to send those to us yeah so uh, thanks so much for listening bye, bye. bye.